you turn in your Bibles to uh, Philippians chapter 3, we're back in the book of Philippians this morning. Uh, we're looking at the, the marks of a, um, a true believer, a true Christian. And uh, sometimes um, you say, well, what do you, what do you mean by that, a true believer, a true Christian? So there's, a, there's a lot of people in America today that think that um, they're a Christian. The average person on the street would probably say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Um, but we need to kind of put down some marks um, in the sand is what, what really is a Christian? And we've been going over this for the last uh, uh, couple weeks. And um, one of the first things we saw there in, in verse 1 was he says, uh, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And that was one of the first things that we talked about is that a Christian is someone who uh, does rejoice in the Lord. And that's not happiness. We're not talking about that. We're talking about a joy, a deep-seated joy that only God can uh, place in our hearts. And that joy is there even when we have a horrible week because we know the Lord. We know that God's going to get us through that. And sometimes God brings along those tough times, those hard times to grow us in our relationship with Him. And so if you're just depending on what's happening around you, you may be sad, you may be uh, you know, miserable, you may be depressed. But if you have that, Lord, that, that joy that only the Lord can give you deep down in your heart, um, I guarantee you it will see you through anything, the hardest thing in life. And, uh, um, you know, I remember last year about this time, um, Sarah Goose has lost their mom. And, um, you know, it was a hard time for them. But to be able to hold on to the fact that, you know what, she, she knew the Lord. She just didn't kind of, you know, go off in space somewhere. <laughs> you know, uh, Mrs. Sarah Goose is up there in the presence of, of Jesus Christ himself worshiping the Lamb of God. And uh, as much as I'm sure her family and Paul, Mr. Sargus, and Mrs. Her and Ken, you know, when you understand that, that it's that kind of a, a joy, and she had that joy in her life. She had it right up until the end. I mean, you know, I, I remember going to visit her in the hospital one time, and you didn't even have to ask the nurse's station, well, what room is Mrs. Sarah Goose in? You could hear her laughing and carrying on, you know. I mean, it was kind of new where all the activity was in the hospital. That's where the Sarah Gooses were. So, uh, you know, that kind of joy gets us through times like that. And that's one of the, the first marks here that he, he lays down. Do you have that deep-seated joy in your heart? And then he goes on and he says, you know, it's not a, a pain for me to write these things to you again. It's not tedious, but for you it's safe. And then he begins to describe some people who basically held on to circumcision, the out, outward mark um, of circumcision, as kind of, that's their holiness. That's their mark of holiness. It'd be like if I got up here and put a tassel around my neck and dressed in a robe and said, see, look at me, you know and talked a little different when I was up here and all that, well, you know, somebody who wouldn't be aware would say, oh, that person must be a special person. That person, look at the robe they have on, look at the, you know, the hat they're wearing, all this kind of stuff. Well, you know what? Those people that wear that kind of garb, they're, they're no different than you and I. No different at all. They have a heart that's filled with sin and needs forgiveness by Jesus Christ, as we all do. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so here in, in Philippians, he says, first of all, you have this joy in your heart, but also you have to have some uh, discernment. Believers have discernment. 
given by the Holy Spirit. It's not their own. And so when he says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation, uh, he was talking about the, the Pharisees of the day that stood out amongst the people and, and claimed to be righteous. Why? Because they were circumcised. And we went into that in depth. And if you want to know more about that, you can get the tape on that. But he calls them dogs. And for a Jew to call a Jew a dog, you know they're pretty bad. And these weren't nice little puppies. These were bad dogs that ran the streets and sometimes even killed people. He says, beware of evil workers. It wasn't that these people weren't doing work. See, some of the most deceived people in the world, I believe, are the people that are doing all the good. They're out there feeding the homeless and helping, you know, Katrina victims and all sorts of things. They have all this big line list of, of good works that they're doing. But they're doing it with the wrong motivation. And God doesn't recognize that. And just like these folks here, their work is evil. Even though they're doing good, it's still considered evil before God. The Bible says that all of our works, our good works, are like filthy rags before a holy God when we're doing them with the motivation to earn His favor. I don't know about you, but I am so thankful that we don't have a God that sits up on a throne somewhere and says, okay, you know, maybe I'll like you today. You know, uh, oh, you're having a bad week? Well, you know, I don't like you this week. You know, oh, you, you messed up, you fell short, you sinned. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be around for you now. Uh, I thank God that we, we serve a God who is there 24-7. He never, ever turns his back on us. He never, ever forgets the grace that placed us into his family by Jesus Christ. No matter what, what goes on in our life, he's there says that even though we deny Him, He won't deny us because of the work of Christ. And these evil workers, wasn't they were doing evil things. They were doing good things. They had all the religious experience. They had all that kind of stuff. But you know what? They, they were doing it for the wrong motivation. And don't ever do ministry to be seen by men. If you do, you'll be disappointed every time. Because the first time you do it, you might get a pat on the back. You know, oh, good job. Well, great, great to, you know. But the minute that stops, does your heart change? You know, do they, do you say in your heart, well, you know, they don't even recognize that I'm doing this. Nobody appreciates me. And you sit there and stare at your navel and have a big pity party. We've all been there. We've all been at that point in our life where we, we begin to realize, is this really worth it? Does anybody really care? And, and you, you know, you, you go down that road and it just, it's, it's a very selfish road, self-centered road. But when you stop and you say, you know what, I'm doing this for the Lord. Whether, you know, whoever, whoever's out there looking, it doesn't matter. I mean, God bless it. If it blesses somebody, that's great. But you know what? My heart before the Lord is to do what He wants me to do, not what somebody else is pressuring me to do or wants me to do. And so you have to stop and say, you know, if you're involved in ministry, what's your motivation? Are you doing it like these people? Are you doing good work in a bad way, which ends up being an evil work before God? Because you're doing it just to be seen by men, or you think that somehow you're earning favor with God by doing those things? God doesn't need it. You know, God needs our service like He needs our money. He doesn't need any of it. He can carry on just fine. And it's an opportunity for us to serve when He includes us in that process. And that's what we should look at it as. Not a burden. Not something that a big weight we're carrying around our, our neck. Um, 
I remember when I, I, I first went into ministry, I just kind of, kind of fell into youth ministry because I guess that's where you start, I don't know. And uh, they threw me in a room with a bunch of high schoolers and said, here's a Sunday school book, have fun. And uh, I thought, gosh, what is this about, you know? Because I didn't really study youth ministry in college. I just studied biblical studies, pastoral ministry. It was kind of a general major. And, uh, and I remember after a while thinking, you know, these kids don't even care whether I teach or not. They don't, they don't care. Here I am preparing a lesson. Nobody cares. I remember planning things for our little youth group at Fairhaven's Baptist Church in Spring Valley, California. And, you know, planned for 15 kids. One kid would show up. Just one kid. And it's like, oh, you know, you got all the, you got the table and you got the snacks and you got the movie night, whatever you were doing. One kid shows up. You know, right there, if you, if you were going to do it just to be seen by men, you'd say, you know what, let's, pass. let's go home. This is stupid. It's a waste of our time. But you know what, you don't do that. Because you're not doing it for the kids. You're doing it for the Lord. And so I'll tell you what, they really appreciated when, you know what, we said we were going to do something and, you know, one or two kids came. We did it anyway. We just adapt and we had a good time. And you know what? God really blessed that as a result. And so, you know, we don't always want to be fixated on, on what the world thinks or what other people think or whatever. We want to be fixated on what the Lord wants us to do. And not even corporately, but as individuals. Because as we're fulfilling God's will for ministry and for our lives and purpose for our lives as individuals, we know what? God draws all that together and he makes the church a stronger place. And it's not discriminatory to age. You know, some people think, well, you know, I've been a Christian for 80 years and I've pulled my duty, you know, let somebody else go do it. It doesn't work that way. There's no, there's no spectator stands in Christianity. There just isn't. There's a lot of things that even our, our older ladies and older folks in our church do on a consistent basis. One individual comes down here and, you know, fixes things and, and you know, a couple of them actually that, that work around here. Nobody ever sees them. Nobody ever, you know, recognizes or even what they do. But God does. And, and that's the, 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 the reasoning here of Paul. And he's saying, you know, if you're just doing these, these things just to be seen, well, then it's an evil work. And then he calls them the mutilation, which is a really big insult to these folks because they were kind of holding up their, their circumcision as this trophy. Look at us. We're God's people. We're the ones that are circumcised. And what was happening is people were coming to Christ. Paul would go into a town. He would preach the gospel People would come to Christ, Jews would come to Christ, even Gentiles would come to Christ. And then these folks would follow Paul and say, well, I know that you're trusting in the grace of Christ, but you know what? There's another couple things you have to do. First of all, you have to be circumcised. Are you circumcised? No. Well, then you're really not a Christian. You can't really be part of the church. You have to be circumcised first. And then the second thing is you have to follow, follow all the holy laws of Moses. And that's what they would throw at these brand new Christians. And so they were getting confused. They were thinking, well, what is this, the grace of God or the work of man? And that's why Paul has such an attitude here with them, because they were really disrupting the work that the Lord was doing through him. And you can see where the confusion would be is, well, who's the real believer here? This guy with the robe on and, boy, he's got all his little, you know, things in order? Or, or this guy over here just says, you know, I'm a sinner and I need the grace of God. He may not have all the, the religious garb on, but really who is worthy before God? What's not, the Bible says it's not just the outward circumcision of the body. It's the inward circumcision of the what? The heart. See, it's just a sign. Circumcision was just a sign of an inward change that needed to happen. 
And the Jews didn't understand that. And so they grabbed a hold of it and they lifted it up. And, and sometimes, you know, we have churches today that, that do the, the same thing. You know, uh, some churches, membership is a huge thing. You know, you've got to be a member or you've got to do this or you've got to be baptized or you, you know, you, you can go on and on. You've got to go through these rituals or those rituals and then you'll earn the favor of God. Well, trust me, it doesn't work that way. And Scripture clearly points that out. But as a common thread as we go through this, and, and we're just going to look at, at this from kind of a, a different angle today. Because I think that before we, we get into what we are, when he says there in verse 3, he kind of tells, tells us what those people are, and you don't want to be like them. And then he says, basically, practice some discernment there. In other words, beware of these people. Don't just embrace these people. And today, I think... The church as a whole has kind of opened the, the doors of the church wide open to the point where they're, they're, they're encouraging people to come in um, and be part of the, the believing church that are not believers. There was a, a church down in Palm Desert, California. Just a uh, guy used to be a youth pastor. I knew him and he went to this church and made some changes. And just, I mean, the church just took off. I mean, it was like a mega church, it, like in the... In the, the uh, uh, the wintertime down there is the, their, their high month because it's a tourist area. So in the summertime, who wants to be in Palm Desert when it's 130 degrees out, you know, unless you're a golf nut or something. But for the most time, in the wintertime, they would have all these snowbirds come down. And their church, you know, it was pushing 12,000 people from like 300 in a matter of, what, five, six years? They bought this huge property and everything just exploded and it, it was just a, a, an interesting thing to sit back and watch this thing because all of a sudden, things began to change. All the scripture was up on the screen. So you looked around, you went there with a Bible, you were really odd duck, you know, because nobody had their Bibles. The pastor put everything up on the screen. You know, turn to John 3.16, boom, there it is. Well, what would you do? Would you go, oh, let's see, John 3.16, or look up and see it. Most people would just say, oh, what do I need my Bible for? So they stopped bringing their Bibles. You know, I thank God that we have a church where you can say, turn in your Bible, and you hear pages turning. You don't hear that too much anymore. And then, basically, what happened is, because they wanted their, their, their musicians to reach a certain caliber that they couldn't, they started including people that weren't even believers. But they were gifted musicians. Talented people. I mean, some of them played in the... the uh, orchestra there in Palm Desert. Others had bands in L.A. and They'd come to this church and just kind of pop in on Sunday, play the gig, and leave. I mean, you go there, the music just blew you away. Every note perfect. Every vocal is perfect. You know, looked perfect. Everything was perfect. But underneath all that, there was a rotting decay of sin church. And it even reached up to the highest heights of that church until it all came crumbling down. It's sad. Because on the outside, you looked at that and you thought, boy, God's really blessing that. They're one of the top ten growing churches in America at this point. And yet the whole thing just crumbled. Because they were focused on the outward, not the inward. They were focused on pleasing, making the, the environment that they worshipped in so pleasing to everybody that there was no lines of holiness anywhere. So it was... It was sad. And we, we have to be careful of that. We have to guard ourselves from that. We have to practice discernment in that area. And we have to be able to draw the line and say, no, you know what? This person, 
If they believe this, they cannot be a believer. That's it's impossible. I mean, I've even heard people on occasion say, well, you know, they know that Jesus is a good teacher and stuff, and so, you know, they want to be a follower of Jesus, but they don't think he's God. But they still think they're going to heaven. I, I was at a seminar yesterday here in this building uh, for another church, and I was listening to a tape that um, this individual taped at a, uh, it was an interview at the Christian Booksellers Association. And they went around with a microphone, and they just asked all the people selling stuff. Now, this is a Christian Booksellers Association meeting, big one, like in Las Vegas or wherever they had it. I don't know if they had it in Las Vegas, but wherever, one of those big deals. Probably, it wouldn't surprise me. But, uh, you know, it, it, so they had all these people there marketing things, and they went around with a microphone, and they said, what is the gospel? Can you give me a definition of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And, I mean, this interview was, uh, this this this. Uh, uh, sound bite he played was probably like two and a half minutes long. And you heard everything under the sun. Well, you know, the gospel is, is you know, it's that feeling of, of, of need in your soul. And, and God meets that need. The gospel is just loving your fellow man. And it went on and on. I mean, sickening. You know, to the point, well, the gospel is just within yourself. You have to look within yourself. And this is at a Christian function. And we have to stop and we have to say, wait a minute, what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Who is a believer in Jesus Christ? And who might be deceived? There's nothing wrong with that. It starts all the way back with John the Baptist, if you think about it. He confronts the religious leaders of Jerusalem who've come down from the, the temple mount. And they said, you know, we kind of want to see what John was doing there. And those who claim to know God and be the people of God and, and the favorites of God. And he says to them, basically, let me see some fruit in your life. That's what he said to them. He looked at them with all their religious garb on. They're questioning him. He said, Where, where's the fruit? You know, kind of like the, the, the old commercial, you know, where, what was that? where's the beef? You know, I mean, I mean, really, where is it? If, if you're a Christian, there should be some fruit in your life. There should be something there. There should be some evidence of life. If you want to know whether your motives are right and whether you have genuine repentance in your heart, stop and look at your life and say, is there fruit there? Is God doing a work in my life? And John did that and he called into question the fact that someone who believes they are right with God might not be. Just because you believe you're right with God, that doesn't mean it's so. If you're believing the wrong thing, then you may not be a believer. And that's the question that, that Paul is posing at us here, but it's also the question that even Jesus posed. And we've read this verse before out of Matthew 7. There's going to come a day when many people come to me before me. The Lord says, Lord, Lord, haven't we prophesied in your name? Haven't we done wonderful works in your name? Haven't we even cast out demons in your name, Lord? I mean, those are some strong things. I don't know if any of you have ever cast out a demon. I've never even seen a demon-possessed person. I really don't want to. But, you know, uh, that's a pretty incredible thing. And these guys said they did that. And they did it in Christ's name. And what did he say? He says, you know what? I'm going to turn to them and I'm going to say, you know what? Depart from me, you workers of what? Iniquity. Same thing. They fall in the same camp as these evil workers in Philippians. He says, I never knew you. 
And the idea is, I never, ever, ever knew you. Which is a good verse to use for eternal security, if you, if you think about it. Here were guys that were doing works that were incredible things. And Christ said, I never knew you. They did them all in the flesh. God somehow had to reveal himself to them, and, and they didn't get it. Then you come to the 13th chapter of, of, of uh, Matthew and you see these parables. And in the parables, as you read through that, take some time to read through it sometime, there are people who appear to have a legitimate response to the gospel. It seems like, wow, they, they responded. This is good. But then what happens to them? They wither and they die. And Jesus is trying to get across the point that, you know what, there are some people who have a legitimate response to the gospel. But you know what? They love the world. They love the things of the world too much to yield their life wholly to Christ. And what happens? Eventually, they fall away. It's not a matter of losing your salvation. It's a matter of never having it. You have a clear description even where God sows wheat and the enemy comes and sows tares. Where God plants the true and the enemy, what's he do? He rushes right in and puts the false in there. When you come to the book of Acts, you aren't very far into the book of Acts where you meet an individual man who claims to be a believer in Jesus Christ. Then you see later that basically he wasn't a true believer in Christ. He was really a deceiver. And then you stop and you think even of Judas. I mean, even the, own, the apostles of the Lord didn't understand that he was a deceiver among them. And you see this thread throughout the New Testament. Not only... Defining what the gospel is. That's the first thing you see. What's the gospel of Christ? But then right alongside of that thread, you see the, the very uh, point that's made over and over again. Who believes the gospel? Who has trusted in the gospel? You find even in, in Galatians and Romans, all over the place, there's constant, you know, examine yourself over and over again to make sure that your faith is legitimate. you're in that camp, if you're here this morning and you're saying, you know, I, you're casting some doubt in my mind. Take, take some time and read through the book of 1 John. The book of 1 John is an excellent book to read through. It's short, right to the point. And his whole point is, you know what, he wants to understand who the true Christians are. It's all the way in the back of your Bible. And he says in, in chapter 1, first of all, if you want to know you're a true Christian, then don't deny your own sin. In other words, you can't come to God and say, oh, I'm, I'm a good person. That's not going to work because the Bible says that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the first thing a Christian does is they acknowledge their sin. When's the last time you had to admit you were wrong? Or you did something wrong and you had to admit it? Not fun, is it? It's not fun to do that. Whether it's in your marriage or at work or even cutting somebody off on the freeway, you know, it's... It's not fun to have to admit that, you know what, you just did something that's pretty stupid and you need to ask forgiveness. The first thing we want to do is dig our heels in and say, I didn't do anything wrong. You know, we, we get that pride going. And see, that's the breaking point. The minute we're able to admit that sin or admit that fault, that's when God can use us because there's humility there. And that's what chapter 1 in, in 1 John is all about. Don't deny your sin. If you're a true Christian, you're not going to deny your sin. You're going to acknowledge it. 
You're going to confess it to God. Secondly, in chapter 2, he even goes on and he says, you know what? True Christians walk the way Jesus walked. They follow his model. It's kind of novel, isn't it? If you're going to call yourself a Christian, then you should walk like Christ. You love your brothers. You obey the, world, the, the, the word. You hate the world. I remember we were meeting with an individual some years ago. And I think he was, a, he was deceived. I, I, don't, I don't believe he was a believer. He always shared you know, all this stuff that God was doing in his life. But when it came right down to it, there was nothing there. I remember asking him one day, why do you do this? Why do you fall back into this over and over again? And he looked right at me and he said, you know, I just love the world. I just love it. And he was serious. I thought, how sad. Here's a person that has all the religious garb on, but you know what? They're, they're no more a believer than the man in the moon. They're deceived. Because they don't walk the way Jesus. They don't love the brethren. They don't obey the word. They don't hate the word. They love the world. In chapter 3 of 1 John, he even goes on, he says, true Christians do not continue over and over to practice sin. Well, what's that mean? Does that mean you're perfect? No, none of us are. We all sin in a myriad of ways every day. It's talking about a, a lifestyle. It's talking about a, a life of sin. Something that you're looking in your life and you're going, yeah, you know what, this is wrong, but I don't care. And I'm going to continue to do it. A Christian doesn't do that. Just don't. One of two things that happen. Either you're not a Christian or God will find you out. Your sin will find you out, the Bible says. You can't hide that. Chapter 4, 1 John, he says, True Christians are characterized by their love for God and their love for one another. Sometimes it's funny because you can... You know, our love for one another sometimes is interesting. You know, it's almost like a task. It's like, oh, we got to get together and fellowship again. It's like, jeez. Shouldn't be that way. Shouldn't be that way at all. You got to take a hard look at your Christian walk if that's, you know. I mean, I don't even, you know, I mean, just my personality, I'd rather be alone than be with a group of people. But that doesn't make me, you know, stay home on Wednesday nights or stay home on Sunday mornings and just because I don't like to be around people. I mean, that was even before I was in ministry. I mean, the first thing I did when I got saved was I got to find a church. I was at college. There was no accountability. There was nothing. I went to this, this very, very fundamental Baptist church. And, uh, I mean, they were very fundamental. Just, you know, really hard-nosed about a lot of things. I remember one of the first things I did, I stood at the door and handed out these fire things, bulletins, I guess. They're, you know, it's just amazing. And, you know, looked at the bulletin. Oh, they're having a, a men's breakfast. Well, I guess you go to that. And, you know, it wasn't like, oh, I've got to go to this. And, yeah, I was looking forward to it. Why? Because I wanted to grow. I wanted to be around other Christians. I wanted to know what this thing is all about. So true Christians are characterized by their love for God and also their love for one another. And also in chapter 5, he gives kind of a, an overview of the whole book. And in verse 13, he says this, These things I have written to you, 1 John 5, 13, that you who believe in the name of the Son of God, in order that you may know that you have eternal life. See, our salvation is not left up into a quandary. We, we shouldn't go to bed at night wondering, well, you know, if I die tonight, 
would I, would I be in heaven? You know, I pray a little prayer with Mason when I was up there, and he prays it every, every night. I, uh, you know, the little one, what is it? I, I, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. I'm thinking, okay. You know, and then I'm looking at it theologically, and I'm going, oh, okay, well, he's a little kid. You know. but, but I think that, you know what? There shouldn't be a question mark there. You should know that you know that you know that, you know what, if you walked out of here and walked out to get in your car and you got nailed by a car and you were dead, don't leave that up to question. You should know that, you know what, I'd be in the presence of God. Immediately. And when you don't have that confidence, when you don't have that assurance, you want to stop and look at your walk. You want to look at your faith. You want to look at, examine it. That's what the Bible calls us to do. We should know that we know that we know the Lord. Don't leave it up to question. And so what I want to do this morning, just kind of quickly here, because in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, Paul writes this. He says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Test yourselves. In other words, examine yourselves. The Bible says, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? That's probably one of the most important tests you'll ever take. Who here likes taking tests? Anybody here? Some people like it. They really do. Anybody? Some people love taking tests. Ah, I got tests. I remember those kids in school. They used to irritate me. You know, um, I did all right, but it, you know, I wasn't kind of a couple bulbs short upstairs, I think, or something. I don't know, because, I mean, you know, I'd, I'd walk away from the test going, yeah, nailed that one, and you get the grade back. It's like, oh, you slide in under the thing so nobody sees it, you know, as they walk by. I don't like tests. But here Paul says, you know what? You need to test yourself to see if you're in the faith. And I just want to give you kind of a, a little couple points that you can look at. And, and the New Testament is loaded with tests for true Christians. Over and over and over again. You see it throughout. Um, and, and, and Paul here was, was preaching the gospel as he went into these, these towns and then these guys would follow him and say, no, you've got to be circumcised, and you've got to be this, and you've got to be that. And so he goes through here, and he says, basically, he sums up in, in verse 3, three things that characterize true believers. And they're not actions, if you look at this. We're going to look at this next week, but just to show you what they are. He says, for we are the true circumcision, and then he gives the definition. Who? Who worship God in spirit, first of all. And secondly, rejoice in Jesus Christ. And thirdly, have no confidence in the flesh. It's interesting that those things are not actions. It's not those you can't do those things. Those are things that you are. Those are attitudes. And those are things that only God can give you. Well, what are some things that, from a negative point of view, when you look at salvation, when you look at your own faith, what are some things that do not, that you shouldn't use to validate your faith? Rather than saying, what, 
What are the things that validate your faith that we touched on this morning a little bit? Let's look at a couple things that are not appropriate tests for your own faith. In other words, when you look at these things, you shouldn't say, oh yeah, I got this one, I must be a Christian. I, I have them written there in your outline. The first one is this. I'll give you five of them, basically. The first inappropriate non-proof, you might say, of salvation is a past conversion or a past experience. Let me say that. It's better to say a past supposed conversion experience. I mean, if you're converted, you're converted, right? There's no going back from that. Well, what do I mean by that? See, what I mean by that is some people cling on to something that they did when they were little or when they were a teenager or, you know, early on in their life, some, some experience, they were at a conference or they were at a youth camp and they had the music playing and the, the youth pastor was up there sharing the gospel and at the end he said, you know, if you want to accept Christ, you need to come down here and bow your heart to Christ. And you did that. You came down the aisle and you bowed your heart to Christ right there. Nothing wrong with that. A lot of people come to Christ that way. What's sad is, that doesn't make you a Christian. That experience doesn't make you, make you a Christian. It can. But being a former youth pastor, I, I can count. I don't have enough fingers or toes to count of the kids that came forward at times, prayed a prayer, and then, you know, weeks or months later, you look at their life, and it's the same mess it was before. Why? Because it didn't do anything. Nothing happened. Sure, they walked down an aisle and they raised their hand or they did whatever, but there was no conversion. It was all sentimentality. It was all emotions. They looked over and all their friends are going, so what are they going to do, stand there? No, they're going to come forward too. It's a herd mentality sometimes. See, I think when God touches somebody's heart, they're converted. And you'll see fruit of that conversion in their life. Just because they prayed with their Sunday school teacher, they prayed with their mother, they prayed with their father, they went forward in a church service, they signed a card, they went to a youth meeting, whatever it is. All those things may be good things, but if that's all you're holding on to, we've got problems. It's no proof. It's no proof that a person... Let me say it this way. It's no proof that you're not a Christian if you can't remember when you came to Christ. Have you ever asked, have you ever asked people, well, when did, you become a, when did you come to Christ? And they say, you know, I, I kind of grew up in a Christian family and I, I don't really have that one time. You know what? That's okay. Some people would say, oh, no, no, no. You need the day, the hour, the minute, the second. You've got to remember everything. It's not proof that a person is not a Christian just because they don't have their, their little daytime route. Yep, it was, you know, January 14th, 19th, whatever. A lot of us know when we were converted. A lot of us know when God did that work in our heart. But you know what? You don't hang on to that event. See, a lot of people hang on to that event and then God's not doing anything in their life. And their life's a mess and they're going, well, are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. Well, how do you know? Well, I prayed this prayer back in 1960 and, you know, they said I was a Christian. Was God working in your life? No. 
Are you doing what God wants you to do? No. Are you obeying Scripture, reading Scripture, praying, fellowship? No, I'm not doing any of those things. But I know I'm a Christian because I prayed this prayer. Sad. They're deceived. They're deceived. They came through the process of believing, you might say, but there was no work in the heart. And we have to be careful sometimes that we don't bring evangelism down to this little formula. That's not what it's about. Some people have lived in a, a pagan situation. They were raised in an unsaved saved family. At some point, they were exposed to the gospel somehow. And the more you were exposed to it, the more you realized, you know what, I need to get right with God. This is a real thing. And God's taking you through that process. I doubt if anybody here, the first time they heard the gospel, just said, yep, I want to become a Christian. The first time. Usually it takes a myriad of times. So it's not a proof that a person is not a Christian because they don't have some event. It's okay if you have one. That's great. I have one. I remember the day, the hour, everything. But it doesn't matter if you don't. That doesn't make you a non-Christian. Because some people say they're Christians, they're holding on to an event, and that's, it doesn't matter. Turn over to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. See, and this is part of the, the discerning. This is part of the understanding. Well, what's, what's the response to the gospel mean? What is an authentic response to the gospel? In Acts chapter 8, in verse 9, Look at, at verse 9 there. It says, <clears throat> But there was a certain man named Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. <clears throat> Isn't that typical? They got the whole thing backwards. His power wasn't from God at all. It cracks me up. You, you, know, you hear these people sometimes on these talk shows and they're into all this weird, you know, seances and all sorts of things. And, and you know, the talk show hosts say, oh, that, God really gave you a gift. Yeah, maybe Satan gave him a gift. I don't think God gave him that kind of gift. God doesn't condone that kind of behavior. Now here he was in Samaria and he was astonishing all these people. And this magic that he practiced was probably some demon activity. Something weird going on. And he probably was clever enough and decided to think, you know what? Uh, I'm going to use this for my benefit. And people actually said, boy, he is just the greatest. Look at this guy. This man is the great power of God. Verse 11. And they heeded him because he had astonished them. What you got to do is turn on your TV to some of the Christian shows. You see coliseums full of people. You have some individual up on the stage and doing all weird stuff. People are falling all over the place. And 
It's just crazy. And yet, what are the people doing? Oh, they're astonished. Verse 12, But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Now follow this. Verse 13, Then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs that were done. Now Simon himself, what? He believed. He had an event. Something uh, you know, took place here. Philip was preaching. He preached the gospel. He responded. So Simon could look back and say, I remember the day when Philip was preaching and I responded. I remember the day that I was baptized. It says there, even he continued with Philip. He followed him. And it says there that he was amazed at what he saw. Why do you think he was amazed? He was, he was amazed because the power of God was infinitely greater than the power of Simon or the power of Satan even. He couldn't believe what he was seeing. Go down to verse 18. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money. saying, Give me this power that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Spirit. What's he doing? He's saying, Man, I want this. This is a good deal. I can make a lot of money with this deal. Oh, he didn't pay you in advance for it. You go out and you lay hands on people and they get the Spirit? This is, this is a neat miracle. How do you do this? He's amazed by it. It's the greatest trick he's ever seen. What happened was the apostles were laying hands on these new believers and I'm convinced they began to speak in languages just like they did on the day of Pentecost. And the whole point was to associate them with the, the original church, the, day, the church that was born on Pentecost. These were half-bred Samaritans and, and uh, they were one with the Jews in Christ. So they began to speak in these miraculous languages Indicating that they have the same spirit as everybody else. And he says, I'll pay you for this. Look at verse 20. But Peter said to him, your money perish with you. Because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Yeah, he had an event, all right. Didn't do him much good, but he had an event. He was baptized. He believed. He did all this stuff. He was holding on to that. Verse 24, Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me, that none of these things which you have spoken may come. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching 
the gospel in many villages and in uh, to the Samaritans. He's going to perish. This guy's going to perish. He thought he could buy the gift of God with money. He had no portion or part with it. He goes on. His heart wasn't right before God. He was wicked. He needed to repent. Even the intentions of his heart were wicked. And you say, well, was he a Christian? He got baptized. He was this. He was. He believed. He had an event. That's all he had. That doesn't prove anything. That's why I say just to have an event doesn't make you a Christian. There has to be a conversion. Quickly, a second moral proof there is living by a moral code. Living by a moral code. In other words, you look at your life and you say, you know, I'm doing, I do nice things to people. I help out. I you know, try to do as much as I can for people. That's what being a good Christian is all about. There are many moral people in the world, beloved. Look at the Mormons. They're very moral people. Very family-oriented people. Very caring people. Very charitable, very kind there's a lot of people like that. There's a lot of unsaved people in very liberal churches that probably do a lot more for, for the downtrodden and the down and outers, the homeless people than you or I ever would even think of doing. doesn't make them a Christian. Some people are set to live according to the Ten Commandments. That's why whenever you share Christ with somebody, use the law of God. Just ask them, have you ever kept all the commandments? Nobody's perfect. Nobody can do that. Don't have to answer, obviously, no. I can't. So a moral code doesn't, just because you live a moral life, that doesn't make you a believer. Now, mind you, all these things are good things. But if you're just focusing on one of these, you may be missing the mark. Third indicator that doesn't verify your salvation is the knowledge of truth. Call it head knowledge. I mean, there's a. I mean, some people are just amazing with with the way their minds think and the way that they can recall things. Um, and I'm here to tell you, I'm not one of those people. I'm just not. I mean, you know, I can be going to the store and, and Ambika say, you know, I get a gallon of milk or whatever. I'm just like, okay, fine. And I get to the store and I'm walking around the store. What in the world did she tell me to get? I literally cannot remember. And it drives me nuts. So when she makes the, you know, okay, get, how many things is it, first of all? Oh, it's just two things. Okay, write it down. Just write it down. It's just so much. Oh, you can remember this. Eggs and milk. You know, I mean, how hard is it? I get in Safeway. I look like an idiot walking around going, ah, what was it? My mind doesn't, I don't know what's wrong with me, but my mind doesn't think that way sometimes. And it's hard for me to just recall things. There's some people, you ask them a question, oh, that's, boom, right here. It's just amazing. Amazing. But you know what? That doesn't make them a Christian, beloved. That doesn't, that doesn't matter. I mean, it's great if you're knowledgeable that way and you can simulate facts quickly and think quick on your feet. That's great. 
God's blessed you that way. He didn't bless me that way. I don't know why, but He didn't. But there's some people, they know that God is three in one. They know all the facts about God. They know that Christ is deity. They know that uh, Christ came to the world and He did miracles. They know that Christ died on the cross. They know that He died a substitutionary death. They know that He rose on the third day. That He offers salvation by grace. They know all that stuff. It doesn't make them a Christian. That's not what a Christian is. In fact, the Pharisees and the scribes, like the other Jews, like Simon, when they were looking at an event, like the rich young ruler who was looking at the moral ethical standard that he kept, well, other Jews knew all about Christ from his birth on. I mean, they studied it. They knew it all. They knew everything about him. That's why Christ says in Matthew 12, you can't be saved. You've committed an unpardonable sin. Well, what's he mean by that? In other words, you know what? You've seen it all. You've heard it all. You've experienced it all. And you won't believe it. You have it all in your mind. And yet, you will not bow the knee to Christ. Even in Hebrews, he says, the writer of Hebrews says, you've been enlightened. You've tasted of the heavenly gift. You've tasted the powers of the age to come. But what? You won't believe. You won't receive it. It's not enough just to have head knowledge you have to have that knowledge that works its way down to your heart. The Bible says clearly, faith without works is what? Dead. James 2.19 The devils believe and tremble. They're not saved. You can believe it's all true. That does not make you a Christian. That does not make you someone who has been converted by the hand of God. I mean, just stop and think of Judas. I mean, how much more information could you have in your head? This guy spent time with the Lord and with the apostles, and he saw everything that they did. He knew it all. He knew it all so well that even the apostles didn't even catch on to what was happening. And yet he was never once saved. He was never saved. He went to his own place and he committed suicide. So knowledge is the third thing. Fourthly, another non-proof of salvation. Let's just call it religious activity. Religious activity. In other words, going to church, being baptized, taking communion, lighting candles, prayer beads, whatever you want to do. Okay, Pilgrimages, all that stuff. That does not make you a Christian. Remember when we were down in Mexico with the young people, one time we saw this group of people and the leader of the group was carrying this cross and they actually had kind of beat this guy with something, I don't know, but I mean he had bruises on his body and he was actually even bleeding. And there's people behind him, this parade of people it's around Easter time and they were crawling on their knees. And I asked the pastor, I go, what's this about? Oh, this, <laughs> this, this goes on every year. These people go up and down the streets it's horrible. I mean, their knees are literally raw. And they're thinking somehow that they're, they're earning favor from God by doing this. They're deceived. They're deceived. They're caught up in religious activity. 
Just because you come to church, that doesn't make you a Christian. It just doesn't work that way. I wish it did. I wish just pulling people through those doors automatically, they became a Christian. It just doesn't happen. I, you know, I, I really do. It would be so much easier that way. But God has to do a work in your heart. So religious activity. And the last thing here. This is the big one. Service in the name of Christ isn't proof of your salvation. There's many people, beloved, who so-called accept the call and they enter into the ministry only to just crash and burn. I've heard stories of, of pastors who weren't even Christians. And they had thriving ministries. Thriving. I spoke here yesterday. I was listening to him. He said, you know, he said, until God touched my heart, he goes, I look back on my 30 years or 25 years of ministry. He goes, I don't know what I was doing. In successful churches, gifted speaker, I don't know what I was teaching. Somebody 80 years old finally called me aside and said, you know what, you're not teaching the gospel. He said, what do you mean I'm not teaching the gospel? He goes, that's all this guy said. He goes, I didn't understand what he was saying. But he goes, I look back on it now, and I realize I was out in left field. It's so easy to, to, you know, to, to get fulfillment from serving. And if that's the motivation, boy, that, that's sad. Because I think people that are in that, in that mindset are really going to people, be the people that stand before the Lord one day and say, Lord, Lord, haven't I done this? Didn't I pastor a church? Didn't I marry people? Didn't I baptize people? Lord, didn't I give money to the church? Didn't I do all these things? And he's going to say, you know what? I don't even know who you are. I don't know about you, but that strikes a little chord of fear in my heart. <laughs> We don't want to be trusting in things that we mentioned. All those things are good things, like I said. But unless you see God actively working in your heart as a Christian, I think it's time as a church and as individuals we stop remembering, remember the day when I first got saved. You know, I was so on fire for the Lord. I hear people say that and my heart breaks. I was like, well, what happened? What do you mean you were on fire for the Lord? Well, yeah, when I was in ministry, I was doing... What do you mean when you were in ministry? Why aren't you in ministry now? What? I mean, I don't understand this. You know, sometimes we, we say things and it, words mean things, but it confuses me. We need to stop and we need to say, God, where is my heart before you? Is it a heart that wants to worship you in, in a sincere way? Is it a heart that, that really wants to yield itself to you and, and just forget about all the trappings of everything around me and just say, God, do what you want to do in my life. I just want to bow before you and, and, and humble myself before you and you do your work. I don't want to set my agenda aside and, and God, whatever you want to do, go ahead and do it. That's where God needs us to be as individuals, as a church, as his people. That's what he wants. He wants hearts that are yielded to him. 
remember when I first came to Grace, I had like this six-month plan in my head. Six-month plan. Yeah, we're going there. I just, you know, was. Then I got here, and well, six months may be a little aggressive. We'll change it to 12 months. And looked at 12 months, and I'm like, well, you know, maybe 18 months. That sounds good. How about three years? Finally, God tapped me on the shoulder and said, what are you doing? What is this? First of all, it's not your church. You just can't do whatever you want with this church. This is my church. I gave my only son to die for this church. Who do you think you are? I mean, I want to say, well, I think I'm the pastor. But you know what? That doesn't mean anything. That doesn't mean a thing. I mean, I really like to think that we're all in this together. We're on a level playing field. You know, when you're on a level playing field in a football game, if, if you see somebody running to the left and they need a blocker, hopefully you're not going to sit over here and go, you know, I don't block, sorry. <laughs> no, you play as a team. You go and you say, I'll do whatever I can. Have you ever seen these kickers? You know, they, they punt or they kick the kickoff and everybody, they get through the whole, the whole uh, defense and, the, you know, the, the poor kicker's left. You know, he's got those weird numbers usually. Skinny guy or whatever. He's out there, he gets this running back who's just burning up the field. And they always try to make an effort. They don't just sit there and go, I'm sorry, <laughs> go for it. I'm a kicker. I don't tackle. They always try it. They usually don't do very well. Usually they like dive and miss the guy completely. But at least they're trying. See, that's what we're called to do as the body of Christ. We're all called to pitch in together and say, hey, you know what? Yeah, I know that what the gospel is, and I know that I believe the gospel. What's the next step? The next step is participating in the gospel together. And then you begin to see God work. And he does incredible things. But we have to come before him individually first. And I think, frankly, I know in my heart, I mean... There's, there's need of repentance sometimes. You have to come before God and say, you know what, God, I need to set my agenda aside. I, I want to do what you want me to do. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I pray that uh, you would help us to take the words that we've heard uh, this morning and apply them to our own hearts. And, and Lord, I pray that even though those five things we talked about, they're all okay things. Lord, I, I pray that no one here this morning would be trusting in any one of those things as a validity of their salvation. Lord, I pray for each one here this morning that they could look at their life and say, no, I know I'm a Christian because, not because I did something 10 years ago, but because God's doing something in me right now. And I see Him at work. And I'm growing more like Christ daily. I'm understanding His Word more and more each day. I'm learning to serve Him in, in ways that once were uncomfortable. But now He's opened up doors and avenues of service before me. and I want to be obedient. Lord, I pray for our church. I pray that we'd be focused on the right things. I pray that we wouldn't get caught up in all the marketing and all the, the chaos that a lot of churches are involved in just to try to impress somebody. Lord, we want to impress You. We want to do it corporately, but we also want to do it individually. And Father, we thank You for Your grace in our lives. 
We thank you that we don't have to do the dance to get the hug from you. But Lord, you've already hugged us with the blood of your, your son, Jesus Christ. And you've clothed us in his righteousness.